Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Fast Times at Ridgemont High, starring Sean Penn, Jennifer Jason Lee, Judge Reinhold, Phoebe Cates, Brian Backer, and Robert Romanus. Written by Cameron Crowe based on his book and directed by Amy Heckerling. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to continue our cask of we could all use a good laugh right now with 1982's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And we just finished watching it in the other room there. And when was the last time you saw that movie, Matt? It's been a good five or six years. And by that, I mean good. And even with that, I think I saw like an edited version made for TV. And I don't even know what's left of this film on the made for TV version that matters. So <laughs> yeah. if you, you know, you want to go back to full viewing, it's been a decade. Easy. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we're going to talk what about all- you. Has it been a while too? Um, actually, no, I think I actually saw this in the theater for like one of those like cinema re-releases, oh, cool. like maybe three years ago, two okay. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I watch it pretty, pretty regularly actually. Well, we're going to talk all about that, but let's, why don't we start out with the drink here? Bottle of Booker's, so this will be a nice, different change. Um, Here we go, bottoms up, I guess. I've been thinking about this bottle a lot during the week. I haven't had any in the interim since last week's episode. Yeah. And I want to take a drink here to see if I can confirm my thoughts, but to you, Matt, cheers. To you, Jesse, And and a happy birthday to you as well. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think I'm going to say it. Uh, this might be a first for Rye Smile Films. I don't know if I like this bottle very much. Really? Mm-hmm. What's the problem? There's something about the... Because you get that that, that first kind of that hit. Caramel. And, and then it kind of sticks around, but then it doesn't stick around and go into anything that I find enjoyable. Interesting, it, really? It's almost, it feels like a little burnt to me, or it's it's resting burnt on my palate. It's interesting because the very first hit for me mm-hmm. is caramel or caramel, however you want to say that. Yeah. And then it moves into a little smoky pepper. Um, yeah. Smoothly. I, I, I'm i not entirely opposed to this. Let yeah. me go again. Hang on. Yeah, go, go again. Give that good smell too. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know if it's yet. Yeah, it's not something's not clicking with me for me to like fully get on board with this, which is interesting because Booker's that's like that's like a seventy-five, eighty-dollar bottle right there. So yeah, yeah. That so might other be a- than purposely drinking bad stuff, um, <laughs> this is the first time, like you said, first you haven't really liked one. Yeah, I guess it's just not agreeing with me, like palate-wise. It's been bound bound to happen at some point. So so you said you had a an idea about this before we jumped in. Well, I'd been thinking about it all week because last week when I, we drank it, I was like, Hmm, I don't know if I like that. And then I haven't had it since last week's episode and I wanted to confirm it. And yeah, I don't think, I don't think this is a winner for me. I'm sorry, man. That no, no, sucks no, no. That That's... we dropped the dimes on these for this bourbon that you're no, not a no. fan of. That sucks. It's bound to happen. I guess. Yeah. With that bottle. What? I don't know. 35. <laughs> yeah. What episode are we? This Close is to 70. 67. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a thought I had, so. All right. Well, you're all right. To <laughs> longevity. <laughs> to longevity. <laughs> yeah. And winners since then. Okay. Let's get to our flight question. All right.
Linda Carlisle and Michelle Shocked at their best, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you a Go-Go's fan? I, I like, and I like that song specifically. Yeah. I love how it starts this film out, but we're going to have plenty of time to talk about this soundtrack because mm-hmm. it's pretty diverse in a lot of areas. Yeah. Fast Times at Ridgemount High, 1982. We did this last week with The Hangover from the 2000s. I always like kind of looking at stuff in the decade and kind of picking out, you know, where we kind of land with stuff we tend to favor. Yeah. So let's do our top three favorite comedy films from the 80s. I'll let you go first with number three. Can I do an honorable mention to number three? Definitely. Just barely missed. Mm -hmm. Can't Buy Me Love, 1987, Mm. Patrick Dempsey. Patrick Dempsey. I really love that film. (laughs) I still enjoy that film. It comes on. I really like it. Excellent. Um, (laughs) But that's, I guess, fourth. Yeah. Number three for me, Heathers. Okay. Kind of dark. A little different. <laughs> I loved that film when it came out. Yeah. I mean, I watched that movie pretty much every day. I loved the Heathers. Mm-hmm. I loved Winona Ryder back then. Kristen Slater's fantastic even doing his B-minus Jack Nicholson in full effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I love my dead gay son. That line just used to leave me absolutely on the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved Heathers. Okay. I haven't watched it in a long time, and I know that it's had a bit of a reimagining and a reawakening in the last three or four years. Yeah. Isn't there a series on Hulu or something? Yep. Um, probably a pass for me on that just because the nostalgia was what it was. Mm-hmm. A Shannon Doherty. Mm-hmm. I, that's just, I, I think that's a terrific film. It's probably been a decade for me, too. Veronica, Interesting. Yeah. Is that 89? Yep. Yeah. Just barely making the cut. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Fairly dark compared to like, something else mm-hmm. i'll throw an honorable mention out there too we okay. mentioned it last week with but i just rewatched it recently and i'm willing to roll with more slapsticky humor than you are that's that might that three stooges and me it's airplane mm-hmm. and it's just every joke just you know you like gladiator movies <laughs> have you ever seen a grown man naked have you ever been in a turkish, <laughs> turkish prison yeah, yeah yeah it's just too much it's just and yeah. it, it, that's an absurd comedy that just borders on just craziness right. and i'm willing to roll with it you know robert stack and lloyd bridges great, great cast in that in that film so that's an honorable mention for me number two um oh wait a minute you, that was you said that was your honorable mention my honorable oh yeah you just gave me your honorable mention yeah you're number three well no i did i did heathers oh okay so i'm at number two okay let me do my number three right. then. okay okay uh caddyshack yeah i don't claim to be me, 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 yeah <laughs> The Dalai Lama. Uh, I don't claim to be a great golfer, and I have my own set of clubs, and I can, you know, if I want, go, go, go golf with my friends. And I'm not great, but I can go and have a good time and, and shoot at the range and everything. And so I don't understand, like, the golf culture as much as everyone else does. I can't stop laughing when I watch that movie, whether it's Ted Knight or Chevy Chase not being, like, he was, probably was a dick, like, behind the scenes but everything i've heard yeah, yeah. But really, really hard actor to work with uh it's too funny bill murray at his you know and and that's kind of contained bill murray he's not the the star he's very much a supporting role in that which i he fits well in that regard uh rodney dangerfield yeah i love caddyshack i've always loved it uh, that's number three for me not only is he a hard actor to work with he's a hard musician to play with yeah didn't he have a stint as a drummer mm-hmm. steely dan right i think so i think so too um, I have a question for you about that. About Caddyshack? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, ancillarily. Okay. Is Bill Murray mm-hmm. on your Rushmore comedy Hall of Fame statue list? Probably not. Do you love him? 
I love him in certain roles, but I don't love the totality of Bill Murray. Okay, because I'm with you on that, and I think you are, you and I are in the minority on that. Yeah, a little of him for me goes a long way. Yeah, I think he's really good in Caddyshack, and there's a couple one-offs that, you know, I like. I really like Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate What About Bob. <laughs> um, you know, we talked about Ghostbusters. So I'm not going to get into that again, mm-hmm. but. I feel like there's something that everybody else gets with him that I just don't sure. get. Yeah. I wish I could. I wish I could be as joyous and overwrought with just comedic shtick that he lays out. Yeah. Uh, I just, I can't get there, man. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't dislike oh. him, but man, I can't get there. I like him in stripes. Yeah, and just in in small doses. You know, I actually thought he worked very well with 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 with, with Harold Ramis, mm-hmm. who directed Caddy and wrote Caddyshack. So I think that's kind of the playground he he played well with, and he kind of really wrecked that relationship making Groundhog's Day. They didn't talk for years until Ramis like died. He like went and like tried to go patch that that relationship up. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that's number three for me. Number two, Bull Durham. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know this is a different kind of, again, so yeah, yeah, no, you no, know no. this is not my go-to genre. Sure, yeah. But um, I really like that film. You could say sports, but I think that's comedy. Mm-hmm. I Kevin Costner's terrific. Tim Robbins is really good. Uh, Susan Sarandon is super, super hot. I'm just going to say it. At mm-hmm. that time in her life, she's smoking hot for me. Yeah. Um, it's a unique take on minor league baseball. I think Kevin Costner's monologues from the small of a woman's back and slow, deep, wet kisses that last for three days, really terrifically written. It's mm-hmm. funny. Uh, yeah, I really love Bull Durham. That's a movie that comes on and I can watch over and over and over and over again. Nice. Um, you know, it's not the John Hughes stick. It's not yeah. slapsticky. It's a bit more dramedy probably, but kind of Heather's is too. Yeah. So yeah, Bull Durham, number two for me. Excellent. Surprised you a bit, didn't it? A little bit. That's the film. Uh, Kurt Russell always used to say that's the film he, baseball player, mm-hmm. wishes. That's like the one that slipped away from him that he wishes he could have been in. Did he even give it a crack? Did I, he have consideration? Maybe I, I've never looked too deep. I just heard him say that one time. Interesting. It's like the one that like he's like he's like man, I was like made for that that film. I agree. Yeah. Cool. Number two, you just mentioned it. We did a whole episode on it. Ghostbusters, nineteen eighty four. Sci-fi, paranormal, horror, comedy, again, hard to do, but we totally broke that down in that episode. That's infinitely so rewatchable for me. Um, Again, just working with a great ensemble cast and a very high concept idea. I think the jokes still play well. We talked about how great Rick Moranis was in that thing as well. Um, But yeah, if you want to hear more thoughts on that, go download that episode. But that's number two for me, 1984's Ghostbusters. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, number one for me. Okay. A bit more probably wheelhouse than the other two. Yeah. Beverly Hills Cop. Okay. Um, again, Judge Reinhold twice in the same episode. How crazy, huh? <laughs> Never happened How before. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> um, directed by Martin Brest. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a slam dunky kind of career. I mean. Martin Brest was in this film. He played the morgue guy. Yeah. Morgue doctor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I like that movie. I think that's that's Eddie Murphy's best work. People <laughs> might say Trading Places or, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe even 48 Hours. Uh, Eddie Murphy's terrific in that film. It's a good story. It doesn't rely on the absurd to carry it in the way some comedy does, like mm-hmm. light on story and heavy on absurdity to sort of distract you. 
uh, yeah, I love that movie. Mm-hmm. That would probably be in my all time 10 to 15 comedies ever. Okay. Um, you know, there's some latter iterations that we can get to that are a bit of missteps, like a lot of Eddie Murphy's career. Yeah. Which is better now. Dolomite. Um, that's an interesting series too. I think part two is directed by Tony Scott and I think part three is directed by John Landis. Like pretty interesting with a slam dunk franchise that had Mm -hmm. ultra powerful, super bankable. Everyone loved Eddie Murphy, Mm -hmm. which is weird. And then it just kind of, that all went away. Like, yeah, I think he and a couple other people, well, Bill Murray to a certain extent too, mm-hmm. I think make choices sometimes that did them no favors. Like yeah. when you got into Distinguished Gentleman and Vampire in Brooklyn, Eddie Murphy was either so strung out mm-hmm. or under such bad guidance from his managers mm-hmm. or worrying about his 15 different kids from all these, you know, like Lost. Pluto I mean, you Nash. talk about a, oh, yeah. um, Norbert. Mm-hmm. Talk about a lost decade of really talented, talented sure. comedy chops that we missed. Mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy is the poster boy in that, but Beverly Hills Cop delivers in spades. That's a great movie. I love that one. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Number one. Actually, comedy, yeah, your choices were interesting. They were like, they're, they're comedies, but they're like twinged in like other genres too. I can't, Jesse, I just have a hard time with straight comedy. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I know what you mean. Yeah. I wish I, I hate that I can't. Mm-hmm. I just can't suspend the disbelief enough to where in a lot of comedies, and there's still some wheelhouse stuff that I like, Hangover, mm-hmm. um, Zach and Mary, Sarah Marshall, like some of that, like that, a lot of that Apato stuff, mm-hmm. um, Knocked Up. Yeah. I just have a hard time with the cookie cutter traditional comedy because I just get bored. Yeah. For as much as like I love Airplane mm-hmm. for half of the film. Yeah. I love the first half of the film. Mm-hmm. It's just, again, it's just a personal thing for me. It's not my go-to. Sure. All right, number one. Number one. 1984. It might be 82. I think it's 84. I'll, I'll look it up here. This is like years. That's like my thing. Like I like can pick out the years pretty like that. pretty quick. Yeah. Rob Reiner directed This is Spinal Tap. Yeah. Uh, the first mockumentary of sorts. And I got to tell you, the first time I saw it, I didn't get it. And I, I don't think I liked it. Again, that was like a movie night with my buddies. And it was like a, one of those late movie nights where we started at like 12 and then it finished late and I fell asleep halfway through. So I didn't get it quite. And then every subsequent rewatch, I was just like, oh, my God, I can't. Whether it's the the the, the, the one foot Stonehenge or um, uh, the, the the album that's so, so black that uh, it, it can be none more black. The, 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 the pure talent in that film of having these guys, you know, actually write these songs that are big bottom about like big ass women and sex farm and just, just absurdity. And it's in it, the, the story itself is interesting because it follows this once prominent band, like on like this tour where they're just a laughing stock, literally the last stop on their tours, a um, like a fair and they're it's puppet show and spinal tap. And he's like, Oh, go, Oh, Oh, oh the, the, the puppets have a better dressing room than us. <laughs> Improvised so much. Uh, Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, and um, Harry Shearer—they're—they're they're so good in in that in that film. And yeah, and um, Rob Reiner as well. I can watch Spinal Tap and laugh through the whole thing. So since you brought it up and it's your film, then here's another question I have for you. Okay, is that movie a better measure 
of the greatness of Rob Reiner or the greatness of Christopher Guest? E. I want to lean more Christopher Guest. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I think that's... I think he had more shape in the story and the feel of those characters and like the leeway and, and, and rope to give the actors... Well, yeah. Rob Reiner's like the guy that has to guide the whole thing. And they, they both have, you know, equal success in that. But you want to talk, and then like Rob Reiner, like after that, then does like Princess Bride and, um, oh my God, what, the, the one he did after that was... Um, Harry Met Sally. Harry Met Sally, and then Misery. Like, you know, Rob Reiner had a pretty good 80s too. It's weird too, because you look at the tone of Spinal Tap mm-hmm. and you can see Rob Reiner's fingerprints all over that film in directorial preferences. Mm-hmm. But if you look at Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, Mighty Wind, For Your Consideration, those kind of things that Christopher Guest got behind, Mm -hmm. like I think A Mighty Wind is fantastic. Mm -hmm. You can see both of those two guys working in a nice conjunction in a harmonics convergence that presents so well on screen. Oh, that's well said. Yeah. Excellent. Good choices. Yeah, no, yeah, I think I liked liked a a lot of those. You made me want to go back and rewatch Heathers, so I had to add it to my list. A coming-of-age film, sort of. Excellent. All right. Well, let's get to what we're here for in our review breakdown of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uno dinero. What have you got, Mr. Buckman? I got a cigarette. I got Uno Nicolette. <laughs> hey, you guys had shirts on when you came in here. Well, something happened to him, Mom. <laughs> Come on, Spicoli. Just put the shirts back on. You see that sign? No shirt, no shoes, no dives. All right. Learn it. Know it. Live it. Words to live by. Words to live by. Let's just put that on someone's like tombstone. <laughs> yeah. Fast Times at Ridgemont High starts out with something I actually really like, which is just the opening credit sequence, and it doesn't we don't hear the characters talk or we don't even know who we're supposed to be following or whatnot, but it establishes every prominent character. The mall is kind of like this like conduit that like gels everything together to the go-go's. We got the bead. I think it sets the tone just so well for the entire film. What do you think of this kind of just opening? I love it because it's presented without specifically a main character and an ensemble piece, and you're getting a slice of life and a coming-of-age series that this is the high-water mark or standard by which all the other ones will, whether it's American Pie mm-hmm. or Good Boys or um, Super Bad. We could go on and on. Like This is the one that spawned all of those. Sure. and American Pie? Yeah. Yeah. I love that it starts off that way because you get – kind of the general community that these people live in, which is the mall. Yeah. And that is so appropriate to that time. I Mm -hmm. grew up at that time. Yeah. We went to the mall every day just for our social interaction. Mm -hmm. And you just sort of walked around and looked at each other and barely said anything and barely bought anything because you didn't have any money. And like, I know exactly how that felt. Ate shitty food. Yeah. 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 In the food court. Right. Yeah. Um, and maybe got a job there, but it was miserable. And the only reason you got a job there is you hoped that you could see your friends, which you were doing anyway, because you made your social engagements there. That, yeah, it was set up perfectly with no descript character who is the lead protagonist. And here's the other thing, too. You brought it up. Mm-hmm. We're already three minutes into this film witnessing 
what space Cameron Crowe's really good in, mm-hmm. and that's the use of music yeah. in his film. And that's traditional or contemporary pop music to score the tone of the movie. Mm-hmm. We'll get in, I'm sure we're going to get into Cameron Crowe and how this came to be as this as the show progresses. Mm-hmm. But right out of the bat, we got the beat by the Beatles is perfect for that, or by the Beatles, <laughs> sorry, by the Go-Go's. Where'd that come from? Because I'm thinking of Cameron Crowe's writing <laughs> yeah. to, um, in my mind. <clears throat> And yeah, it sets the tone perfectly. Yeah, really good. And you said it's good. I don't know if there necessarily is a main character in this film. I mean, Spoc- I guess maybe it's Stacy. Yeah, Stacy is. Spicoli steals some of the spotlight just because of how ridiculous he is. But I don't think they all share it equally, which is weird to to. And then we talk about story a lot on this podcast. I don't even know what the story is of this film because really what it is is it's one year from mall beginning to, at the beginning, the end of summer to the end of the school year bookended by the mall. Right. Really interesting. And, and, and we just kind of follow three or four different character arcs through that year. That's the story. It's not Judge Reinhold's film, even though he's in it a lot in mm-hmm. his quest to find some other terrible job. You could say, and this is sort of why I brought this up to when we were watching it, mm-hmm. maybe it's about Stacy and Virginity, but they made that movie the same year that was called Last American Virgin. Um, it's definitely, although she has the crowning moment in the movie, it's not Phoebe Cates' film by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Damone is a huge presence on screen, but he's a support character. You know, we'd have to go through and look at actual screen time and see who dominates it. I bet it's Stacy, yeah. but... It's probably Ratner second, Mm -hmm. but their story doesn't work if the other ones aren't as developed as they are in the film either. So to take that slice of life with that many characters and present them in a way that they all are relatively interesting and interconnected, um, you've got a nice nice ensemble piece. Let's see if we can do this just kind of right off the cuff and then we'll get into just the rest of the film. Okay. So we got Brad Hamilton, who's Judge Reinhold. He uh, works at All American Burger, and it's his last year, and he's a single successful guy, and he has a girlfriend, but he thinks he needs his freedom, and he's just trying to kind of, you know, have this great last year, like this great year as a senior. We've all wanted that, and he probably has the worst senior year ever. His arc is so interesting because he starts high and then like he's like so low by the end of the film. He's working at some knockoff 7-Eleven, some shit job. But then he even finally gets his moment too, where he's kind of maybe on the up at the end. We have, um, you said Stacy Hamilton, um, his younger sister, who's got this job, really looking for something, but really wants to have sex with a guy and, and really trying to like, you know, and she's nervous about it cause she hasn't done that. And then she has her best friend, uh, Linda Barrett played by Phoebe Cates, who as we joke, just gives the worst advice, but it's even interesting what she's saying too. Like, it's almost like she's lying about a lot of the stuff too. Oh yeah. She's the friend who has, and we all know this person, the reddest, hottest, most passionate lover in another state that no one's ever met. Yeah. Like we all know that person. Yeah. Right. So yeah. yeah, she's that. Yeah. And so then, worldly, but she doesn't actually know anything. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, Mark Rat Ratner, B- Brian Beck. I know this actor from two other films, one the year prior in The Burning, which might be my favorite non-franchise slasher film. And then in Police Academy 4. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> he plays like one of the skater guys with David Spade. 
and he's he works at this theater and he's looking for a relationship but he's so timid um and so neurotic that he almost kind of does himself more damage than good just on his presence and he got his buddy um damone who is he's interesting to me because like and they flesh him out really good in the, in the story in my opinion he's like the ticket guy, he's the bookie, he's like going to get you the tickets to the best show at a discounted price, but still net him a profit. He's going to cover you the spread on 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 this sports bet. And he's, he's so much older than like a high schooler, but like we all know a guy like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what Linda is to Stacy, that's Phoebe Cates to Jennifer Jason Lee as a bit knowledgeable and older and more mature than Damone is to Rats in this film and so you get almost a father to son and mother to daughter sort of inner working Mm -hmm. with this between that four that that um, quadrant of characters Mm -hmm. and i guess collectively that's the main story yeah those four dueling agendas now you would expect then one to play role of protag and antag but I actually like that that doesn't happen. There mm-hmm. is not a set bad guy in this film. Mm-hmm. The bad guy is the preposterous nature of ridiculous expectations that come with the final year of high school that none of us can ever meet. Yeah. And frankly, thank God. Mm-hmm. You have no money. You have very limited resources and knowledge about what's going on. And I am so grateful. Mm-hmm. That as I look back on it, everyone that ever said it's going to be the greatest year of your life was dead wrong. And thank you, God, because I don't want the greatest year of my life to be at 17. Yeah, I have no money. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just barely have enough knowledge to like tie my shoes and drive. Mm-hmm. And so this movie takes kind of even though it's not satirical, mm-hmm. it is satirically looking at the growth and this monumental rite of passage. Mm-hmm that most of us go through and whether that's first experience sexually or high school graduation or first job or first failed romance, all of that is in play first car. And I like that the film's unapologetic in the way it presents it. A lot of times with these films, you get a very romanticized version of what this looks like. And then when you get to high school and you live there, like, God, what a, that wasn't, that that never happened. Yeah. It never happened. It's kind of like this film, right? A wide assortment of characters that are all crazy and have their own shit going on. And it plays out a little kind of like this. Right. And then we have the final one, Jeff Spicoli played by Sean Penn, who in the several scenes he's in almost steals the film just on how ridiculous he is. Yeah. We went to high school with like 10 of these guys. Yeah. Just like, I love the line when he rolls into class and the little classmate pulls up to Stacy and is like, this guy's been stoned since the third grade. And he plays it so well, stoner surfer guy. And I don't even know if that was Sean Penn at the time, but Sean Penn's a talented actor. And yeah, you can see it early on. I think he's an absolute freak show now. Yeah. But you can't argue with the talent mm-hmm. that you can see even in this. Yeah. He's like you said, he steals the scenes he's in mm-hmm. because Spicoli is so over the top. Yeah, yeah. So then, yeah, we roll up to to class, and and then we we introduce in the, whatever authority figures we can in the form of these teachers. And the first one, Mister Hand here. Oh, please, I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring, and all my kids are not here. 
Sorry I'm late. It's just like this new schedule is totally confusing. Yeah, I know that, dude. <laughs> Mr. Spicoli. That's the name they gave me. You're ripping my car. Yeah. Hey, bud, what's your problem? No problem at all. I think you know where the front office is. You dick! <laughs> it's just an interesting kind of pr a presentation. Mr. Hand is this teacher that, oh my God, like, I hope we all didn't have, like, a teacher like this because it seems he's, he's so... Uh, authoritative in his teaching style that it's almost like, oh my God, I dread going to the going to this class. I don't think I ever had a, uh, maybe I take that back. Um, I did have a teacher kind of like this in high school. Oh yes, you did. Yeah, I definitely did. Um, You're going to be nice and not put that person on blast. Well, I think I had, you. yeah, I think I had two of them. I know the one you, I know one of them. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, Mr. Handy, he's just interesting by the way he... I love his presentation. He rolls into class. The first thing he does is lock the door, which I'm pretty sure you can't do it. That sounds illegal. Right. Rolls up and underlines his name. Rolls through the, the rows of the classrooms. Rips out a cigarette. Smells it because he's convinced everyone's smoking grass. No eating in class. So he's setting the rules here. And man, there's like... This is like a no bullshit zone. And then like here comes Spicoli and he's just like... He's just so out of tune with it all. That Mr. Hand character is really important. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, he's similar to Betty Buckley's character. That's Miss Desjardins and Carrie. Mm. And I know those are two totally different films, but I think they both generally have the best intentions for their students. It's arguable about the execution in order to achieve that for them. Yeah. But they both play sort of the moral sounding board that feel like they know better and act as a driving or active element to make sure that the rite of passage from youth to adult is smooth through the school of hard knocks. Um, and they do it in both a maternal and paternal way. Like Mr. Han mm, yeah. is your kick-ass grandfather that doesn't dick around and has stories of once upon a time when I, and it hardened me, and it has given me the ammunition to ascend this lofty position of high school teacher, mm -hmm. which if you think about what I just said, might cause you to raise an eyebrow. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fully in that space. Yeah. Miss Desjardins, that's Betty Buckley and Carrie, does the same thing. It's a bit more maternal, but she is essentially Carrie's coach on womanhood. Mm -hmm. Mr. Hand's coach on manhood for Spicoli. Mm -hmm. Betty Buckley's coach for Sissy Spacek is Carrie on womanhood. Yep. And I think both of those are really interesting characters because there's two things I think that Hollywood really likes to pigeonhole in the casting. Number one is teen. There's certain roles that they just put them in and then they fit in these nice, tight little holes. Yeah. And then it's teachers. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Like, I'm, I'm not offended by that. I just love the depictions of them in this character because mm -hmm. what really happens in both cases is... Betty Buckley as Miss Desjardins or Mr. Hand both kind of get the outcome that mm -hmm. they set up. Like yeah. Spicoli kind of grows up and kind of sees the light at the end of this film mm -hmm. on the importance of U.S. history. Yeah. And Carrie realizes full womanhood yeah. in that film. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that's 
an interesting way to look at those characters that um, are essential to both films. Sure. Excellent. That's, that was good. Thanks. I like that. Um, ended a little bit different for Betty Buckley. She was <laughs> nearly half ca- half capitated by the basketball hoop in the yeah. gymnasium. Mr. Hand got to, okay. Well, the first thing, you know, like the, the Fast Times at Ridgemont High had like a spinoff TV show in the like '86 or '87, hmm. and the only people that returned were Ray Walston, Mr. Hand, and uh, the uh, actor that played Mr. Vargas. But the characters were the same. There was a Stacy, there was a Brad, there was a Spicoli. And it lasted like one year. Like the late 80s was weird because there was adaptations of Ferris Bueller, that, Uncle Buck. And these shows, like they didn't last. If it sounds surprising to you, it's because they maybe lasted four or five episodes. Pilot and two more and that was it. And that was it. That was just dead. Like there was no space for that. Mm. And I don't think it works in a TV show like... What I love most about this film, too, is that it's an hour and 30 minutes. It's a quick watch, but you you take in so much in that time span. A whole year's worth of material. Cameron Crowe does a really good job of getting in late, getting out early. <clears throat> well, let's talk about him real quick and how he came to write this film, which is interesting. So Cameron Crowe, I guess, has interesting writing projects that he finds himself in. That require him to just kind of like go into the actual environment himself. When you talk about Almost Famous, that'd be a great episode one of these days. Yes. But here, he went undercover as a high school student, uh, Claremont High School in San Diego, California, to write this book. I don't know what deal he had with the publisher to kind of get this done, but he spent a whole year at the school and took in all these stories that he wrote into this book that then he just then adapted into this screenplay. I showed you the book, Matt. I'm really surprised it's never been reprinted because on eBay, it's going for like $850. It's incredible to me that they don't have secondary third printings of that. That There must be a rights issue or something there. What I think is interesting is that the guy that essentially missed his entire high school experience, that is Cameron Crowe, Mm -hmm. that left high school to go write for Cream and Rolling Stone and grew up the same way we see these characters growing up in the halls of Ridgemont. Hi, mm-hmm. is growing up on tour planes with Zeppelin and Matt Fleetwood Mac and the Allman Brothers. It's pretty awesome. With yeah, with <laughs> Ben Fontoris and Jan Winter, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame jackass that can't figure out who should be in and who shouldn't, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I mean that. Yeah. But he grows up in a completely non-traditional environment, yet he seems to be very capable of writing these characters in a traditional environment. Mm-hmm. It's almost in a way cathartic, I think, for Cameron Crowe to write that story and then adapt it into a screenplay and play out what he missed. Sure. I mean, his version's better. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it's much better. You know, prom versus opening night and 72 at the Allman Brothers on tour. Like, give me a break. Mm -hmm. But Cameron Crowe has this amazing story. And it's almost famous mostly. If you don't know what it is and you want the quick version, just go watch Almost Famous. That's literally him. Yeah. That includes marrying the hottest guitarist in rock and roll and churning out winner after winner after winner after winner, basically because he loves music and basically because that's what raised him. That was mom and dad rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Talking about Nancy Wilson, who makes a brief appearance in this film. Yeah. That's his wife. Yeah. He meets her at a party at Rolling Stone, like with heart. Yeah. Are you kidding me? That's awesome. Nancy Wilson? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And then he goes to write 
Fast Times after writing many, many great pieces for Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. What were you doing when you were 17? <laughs> Wasn't on tour with Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. I'm so jealous. Yeah, exactly. And your first love is Nancy Wilson? Mm -hmm. I mean, what, you couldn't lock down Salma Hayek? I mean, what's going on there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, or Pat Benatar, he was with Neil Giraldo. Like, it, I just, the whole thing is so beautiful. And it's an interesting writing method, too, to just kind of take slices of real life and then adapt it to this. You so, know? but this is where it gets crazy. Yeah. We talked about it, and you said, what's his first movie? And we didn't look, but it's probably close to Say Anything. If not Say Anything, it's right around Say Anything. Mm -hmm. For this amazing career that includes Vanilla Sky, which I love, and Say Anything, and Jerry Maguire... Like you can see this very precipitous decline at Elizabethtown, mm -hmm. off the cliff, Elizabethtown, Aloha, we bought a zoo. <laughs> I mean, I can just keep going. Yeah. How do you make? I don't know. Say anything, Jerry Maguire and Vanilla Sky. Almost famous. Almost famous. Write this, and then produce that. Yeah. And then <laughs> the saddest thing I've said this year. Mm -hmm. Lose Nancy Wilson. Yeah. They're not together anymore. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I don't know what's next for Cameron Crowe as a guy that was really important to me as Gen X. Like Cameron Crowe is really important to Gen X. He made all of the movies that were the, the score to our adolescence and mm -hmm. early 20s. Mm -hmm. What happened? Yeah. Because this movie is the young Cameron Crowe treading into the waters of what will be with a nice look at there's a lot of potential here with not a whole lot of acknowledgement or susceptibility to garbage what happened mm -hmm. drugs i don't know jesse yeah it could be it's kind of tragic when you kind of break it down like that anyway i, I think i Took us off track there pretty big time on that. But no, 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 that's how we wrote the story. You know, it's it's kind of like these real life, you know, anecdotes of there was a real Jeff Spicoli and there was a real this and a real that and a real Mr. Hand that he observed at this high school. And he just put it into this book that turned into this movie, which is crazy. Could you imagine presenting that to the powers that be at the high school? Hey, I want to go undercover at your school because I'd like to do this comedy i don't even know if you even tell the powers that be i think you just you register and you just you go through the motions i mean was he done at rolling stone and finished with that part of his life yeah. at 20 like young enough to where he could still pass as a high school senior because the answer might be yes yeah and he's just, on the road with them at 15 yeah and you're just there observing you're watching lester bangs od you're watching Jimi hendrix you're hanging out with all of these major stars mm -hmm. and then it's like i'm gonna go back and experience high school in this undercover idea I have for this super high concept story. I mean, I don't know which is more terrifying. Yeah. It's pretty cool. We all observed crazy stuff, like just just stuff that you kind of grew up with that you're like, man, that would make and that's like that story, right? There, like those that person's a character. That situation's a scenario, or like that's a scene right there. You know, it struck me this time in this film I hadn't noticed before when they're at the assembly mm -hmm. and the cheerleaders are trying to say, stop objectifying us as spirit bunnies or whatever. We all hated that name. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so awful. And we're not that we're, we're more than these skirt, whatever. No, mm -hmm. you're not. Mm -hmm. I love that Damone is sitting up in the bleachers 
reading an edition of Cream Magazine mm-hmm. because I think that's everything that I want Cameron Crowe to be yeah. if he sat down with us, and that's heart and soul. Yeah, A nod to the powers that be that got him to where he was, which Cream Magazine edited by Lester Bangs, who gave him his first writing gig that then allowed him to have a, a library of volume to turn into Lester Bangs and Jan Winter at, at Rolling Stone that moved him up the ladder. Yeah, And that Damone mm-hmm. is reading Cream Magazine is the little winky to Lester Bangs. Very subtle. And just saying thank you. Mm-hmm. I love it. And it and it fits too because Damone would be reading Cream Magazine. Yeah. As the, it's rock. the character. It's the character that they set up. It's just so, it's so well done. Yeah. Well, one of the other things you brought up too was the music. So we've already had the Go-Go's in there. We have Tom Petty's American Girl, which bar this film, the other greatest use of American Girl is in Silence of the Lambs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But you have that, and then you know you have you weren't so hot on Jackson Brown, but like it's that it's the cars moving in stereo, it's Stevie Nicks's Sleeping Angel, it's Oingo Boingo's Goodbye Goodbye, like Joe Walsh. Mm-hmm. The There's, one we didn't know was the Ravens. We had to look up the Ravens, but that was a fun song too. Yeah, yeah. Cleaning your car. I mean, it's it's a slice of life at that time, and that's what I appreciate about 1982. Is this film is, would just be so different nowadays? Um, there's the scene later and th- th- probably talking about the story. It'll be a little jumbled because the story is just kind of, it's fragments when uh, rat and Stacy go on their date and he forgets his wallet and he's already neurotic and panicky. It's like, this is how like, this is how I date um, all freaked out. He has to go to a payphone to call Damone to have him come down and bring his wallet today. You could text your buddy underneath the table or you have Apple pay on your phone and, you go pay right there. It's such a different time. There was so much more effort and work that went into literally everything that I think is just lost on the ease of access of things today. Were you an X-Files fan? Yeah. What were Mulder and Scully's best weapons? Yeah, yeah phone. They're phones. Mm-hmm. We make fun of it in Sarah Marshall because you just take the battery out and that whole dinner yeah. scene mm-hmm. with all the snow talking to her about, you know, whatever that terrible movie she made is your mobile phone (laughs) cell phones have done so much harm for movie conflict sure because not being able to communicate creates isolation Mm -hmm. but not with cell phones yep there's other things you can get from it too like i'm not saying it hasn't presented some opportunities but yeah so as damone hopefully he's home (laughs) and then hopefully he answers and then hopefully you have call waiting if he's on the other line. All of those hopefuls. Yep. Okay, they all work out, and Rats just then has to sit and keep ordering food until Damone can show up with his wallet. Mm-hmm. It's really, really a clever problem solved in screen time in minimal amounts of minutes mm-hmm. with a large consumption of food. Definitely. They cut back and it's like 16 platters that are all just empty. And you can see Stacy's like, oh my God. So much not worse. It's a vomitorium in ancient Greece. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That sign, it says 100% guaranteed. You know what the meaning of guarantee is? Did they teach you that here? Sir, if you just wait a minute. Look, just put your little hand back in the cash register and give me my $2.75 back, please, Brad. Sir, if you just give me a minute, I'll find the forms. I'll take care of everything. I don't have a minute. You've made me late enough. I am so tired of dealing with incompetence. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. 
we've always all wanted to do that. What Brad does, just totally lose it. And if you you've worked in the service industry before, you just tell stole my question. Go I ahead. was going to say I know your stories about working at summer camp with kids and yeah. your terrible boss. Yeah, yeah, man. You know how many jobs I've been fired from, Jesse? Mm-hmm. It's Rye Smile is the number greater <laughs> or less than eight. Yeah. You tell me this week. I'll give you a hint. Okay, it starts with G. Yeah, it'd be greater. Yeah. Yes, we all have, and we've all run into that guy. Yeah. Man, what do you mean the whole platter's gone? <laughs> I have so many stories of Red Lobster, and I can't tell you how many of those moments <laughs> shaped who I am today. Sure. But there were so many times where someone would come up and say, this was absolutely terrible, and the, the platter's empty. Yeah, I know exactly. Why I mean, you ran into a situation with a couple kids at summer camp. Yeah. I, I've told me the story. Let's hear one of them. It's just, it's just crazy. You know, like I, I had a, first a boss that would just – I guess didn't think we had enough to do and the, the tasks were so meaningless at times, but you know, you know, kids are kids and you know, we would engage in the activities with them and I'll, I'll never forget one. We were playing kickball with, with some of the kids and my buddy that was working with me, like soccer player, just totally kicked this ball to the pitcher. This little six year old Asian kid, he kicked that ball so hard, and this kid doesn't have the reflexes to catch this ball. Yeah, right in the face. He just <laughs> took it like not a champ because he was just crying instantly. <laughs> but that's just like the, this is the took per- it like a chump. Yeah, uh, just that's just the peril that I ran into that kid too at a at a Sonic one time in the drive thru He was working the drive thru line. Busted uh, cap in your ass? No, no, no. You see, he, he was a nice kid, but um, I was surprised that I saw him. But did he recognize you? He didn't recognize me. No. Uh, but no, it's just, yeah, we all have those, those experiences with work and those type of kind of entry level jobs of, you know, dealing with, you know, the general public, it's hell. Like people, people are assholes sometimes. But you know what with them is, and this is the relatability of fast times, Mm -hmm. high school graduation, first experience sexually, boyfriend, blah, 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 jobs, all those things. Yeah. One of the spaces that makes this movie so relatable is it does in fact tackle all of those things we go through. We've all been through that with that person. Yeah. That guy or gal who is just beside themselves for no other reason than they're just cheap and trying to get away with something. We all see it. Mm -hmm. And so even if you haven't ever had your first sexual encounter in the dugout at some Shantate high school trash pit. The point. Not even the point. Not even as romantic as the point. Like you said, it's not even sunsets and sunrises. Well, it's interesting because Stacy has this grand vision of how this moment's going to play out and she's been looking forward to it for so long. Pine tar and splinters in your ass. And I love how that that scene shot as she's kind of like looking up and it's just like all this just garbage written on the thing of how many people have been here. And it's like, it's not romantic at all. At all. Trashy. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Back to the idea then. Mm -hmm. The run in with the terrible customer. The situation where someone walks in and you, whether you're in the shower or the bathroom, doing whatever it may be, mm-hmm. the awkwardness of first dates, breakups, lack of money, irresponsible friends, like all of that stuff is in play here. And that's why this movie is relatable because you probably cannot say that life is my life, but everyone can say, I'm familiar with that moment. I've been through something kind of like that. And again, back to what I said, it's remarkable that that comes from someone who didn't go through those rites of passage in high school the way the most of us did. He had to go observe it firsthand. He had to witness it for himself, which is crazy. Such a great, such a great layer and twist in this story of him and this movie. Mm -hmm. 
depth. Yeah. Talk about going undercover so you can have material for a screenplay or a, or a, a source novel. Literally. Literally. Yeah. And then you have the Spicoli element. And to me, he's like, uh, dare I say he's the glue that holds this whole thing together? But he kind of is. Fantastic. Let me ask you a question. When you get out there, do you ever fear for your life? Well, Sue, I'll tell you, surfing's not a sport. It's a way of life. No hobby. It's a way of looking at that wave and saying, hey, bud, <laughs> let's party. <laughs> Where'd you get this jacket? I got this in the network. Let me ask you a question. What's next for Jeff Spicoli? <laughs> Oh, headed over to the Australian and the Hawaiian Internationals, and me and Mick are gonna wing on over to London and jam with the Stones. <laughs> you guys are invited too. <laughs> Spicoli's arc's really simple too. All he needs in life is some tasty waves, a cool buzz, and he's fine. And that's kind of how he coasts through life. What he's doing with surfing is what you and I did with maybe baseball or basketball or what your chosen sport was. Yeah. You know how many times in my driveway? I was radio announcer Eck, mm-hmm. X giving the play-by-play on the inbounds pass that I just stole with nobody else in the driveway but me burying the, game the jumper as time expired. And Dixon steals the ball, 3-2, big go! Right? Yeah. Every one of us does that. Mm-hmm. And what did that bucket get me? Fame and fortune. Spicoli yeah. is literally yeah. doing the same thing. It's not hoops or baseball or whatever yours might have been. Yeah. It's surfing, but there's no, that's the, it's the same difference. Again, back to the relatability. Cameron Crowe is so good at that mm-hmm. as writing every man, having never been every man. Yeah. Let's talk about this now, because you mentioned it a little earlier, maybe the most iconic scene from this film. To me, the film has a lot of different tones, and we talked about this a lot last week um, with The Hangover being comedy, and then it kind of dabbles into seriousness at times, dips its toe in, gets it back out, and you have these dream sequences, and then you have just kind of just this this moment here, and you're going to know it as soon as I play it. This is the best song for that. That intro to moving in stereo is great. Mixed with this sequence, it's almost perfect. Like it, and then it's intercut with Joe Dreinhold, Brad, in the bathroom as he's just pulling it. He's had self love because he's working at the knockoff Long John Silver's Captain Hook now, just hating life because he's been fired from All American Burger. His girlfriend dumped in Amanda Wiss, who is Tina in Nightmare on Elm Street. We're going to talk about the other people in this movie here in a second. Just pulling it hard and then has this amazing. And I love the, the my favorite part of the, the whole thing is when she gets out of the pool and like. Her hair's all slicked back, and there's like this like fountain of water, like just kind of raining down on her. It's like it's total, it's a total masturbation fantasy, right? <laughs> and the le- and the the limits or lengths that that went to of effects on popular culture. Are you trying to tell me that anything that Robert Plant did was simply irresistible? Wasn't inspired by the slicked back hair girl? Yeah, like think about that. 
They, Wait, Robert Palmer, right? Palmer, did yeah. I say plant? Yeah. Sorry, Palmer, yes. They take Phoebe Cates and make her so, so, so hot. Mm-hmm. Like the red bikini from Fast Times is an iconic moniker sure. that everyone knows immediately. Mm-hmm. And then she rolls in on him. And even if that's never happened to someone, yeah. everyone's been walked in on the bathroom. Like, even if you're just taking care of business in there. Yeah, taking a shit. Shower. <laughs> yeah. You know how many times? I'm, yeah, anyway. Yeah. We could go on and on with that. Yeah. So you've been there. And then what do you do after that? Like, you just think, doesn't anybody lock in or doesn't anybody knock before they enter? Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, That's good. I almost got caught by my mom one time doing that. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> almost. I, I bet you you didn't because your mom was savvy enough to know better. No, I think I caught it in time, but I think I think my mom knew what I was doing. <laughs> and I think that's an interesting, I thought about that too, which yeah. is how many moms or <clears throat> girlfriends or wives or whatever have caught. And then what's the response from the female to the male. Cause that's kind of a, a common trope. Like it's never the reversal. Well, I shouldn't say never, but yeah. a lot less the reverse. Yeah. And it's almost like, well, I'm going to shrug it off because if I continue down the road of trying to figure this out, it gets so murky. I don't even know if I want to know. So I'm going to just stick my head in the sand and be blissfully ignorant about this one and just go guys will be guys. Yeah. But yeah, Except now there's two things at play, right? Which is mm-hmm. what's Judge Reinhold going to do? Because yeah. humiliating. Mm-hmm. Humiliating. Yeah. And then does he have the faith that she's going to keep that on the DL? Mm-hmm. Because we see later yeah. she doesn't keep, thing on, keep things on the DL and wrecks Damone. Yep. When she finds out that Damone does her friend dirty. Yep. Okay, so let's take it one more level. The bonds of sisterhood. Hell hath no fury like that of a woman scorned. Mm-hmm. We see it in this film. So again, the relatability of this is I pissed her off, which is he doesn't hold up his end of the bargain with Jennifer Jason Lee, Stacy. Mm-hmm. And she just graffitis everything and calls him a prick, little prick. I'm surprised she doesn't call him. I don't even think it's three pump Pete, Jesse. It might be two pump Pete. Well, let's talk about that scene next too. because And she just, she just eviscerates him. Yeah, go ahead. Sure, yeah. So... The Mark and Stacy experiment didn't quite work because he's kind of weird and he's and he's just nervous. It's like a, I think I relate to to his storyline maybe more than anybody's. I think the Mark and Stacy experiment is another iteration of one of the fifteen different bands <clears throat> that spawned from Yes in the progressive rock era. Yeah, doesn't that sound like it? The Mark and Stacy experiment. Yeah. After Asia broke up, that was the fourth version. Yeah, that's pretty good. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, yeah. Just like just awful date experiences. You know what I mean? Like it's already dating's already like the worst thing in the history of the world. Oh my God. To that. <laughs> to Jesus. that. And I, I, I see the nervousness in him, in myself. So when he kind of like he gets like nervous and the, the moment's too much for him and doesn't want to mess it up or take things too fast, he bails. And then she's like, well, he's. Then you play that game, that stupid game where you're just like, like you don't know what the other person's thinking. And she's like, well, she, he's not into me anymore. Then he gets in, interested into the friend. And th- this has kind of happened to me too at times as well. We're like, well, like I'm going to bail on him and go for the, like, go for the friend. Mm. And then it turns into this thing where they, they just, they find themselves like, you know, for swimming and then in the cabana and then for some, man, we made fun of the sex in Halloween for being short. Like this is... <laughs> Who pumped Makes that look like a marathon. Yeah, and he's and he's he's like, Stace, I gotta go. And then it turns into this whole thing, and then we get into and get into some serious territory. She's pregnant, 
And they're like, we got to figure this situation out. We got to, we got to get an abortion and like pay for half of it. Pick me up. And he can't even, I love Damone's character just because of how kind of layered he is. He's this big talker. But even when Jefferson Forrest Whitaker rolls up on him, he's like, I helped him pick out his car. He said, don't fuck with it. Like they're not friends. Mm-hmm. Like he's so full of it. And what the, the gospel that he spouts that when it comes time to him to put up or shut up, which is to dude, come up with 50 bucks to help pay for this thing and give your girl a ride that you did this thing with. And he can't even do that. You know what I mean? Which is pathetic because if he doesn't and that doesn't happen, then he's stuck. Mm -hmm. I have to say though, and I agree with all of that. Yeah. I do think the advice that he gives rats is pretty solid. When he's like about how to date, he's like, you know what? If it takes you casting the bait 20 times to catch one fish on your tombstone is not going to read here lies rats. Mm-hmm. What a loser. 19 sat him down, or like turned him down. It's mm-hmm. going to say here lies rats, beloved mm-hmm. or devoted husband and father. Yeah. That's all that matters. You only have to win that race once. Mm-hmm. And him saying, if it doesn't work out, just shrug it off, water off the duck's back and keep on going because that's the attitude of like, what other, whether she comes, stays, lays or prays. That's exactly what he says. Right. Mm-hmm. Then you just stay the course. Yeah. And honestly, yeah. Of all the advice that's given in this film, yeah, that's the most appropriate. Not even for male to male, for anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's actually right. Mm-hmm. Just keep going, but he doesn't live it. No, for sure he doesn't. Live no, it. he doesn't. And then scored brilliantly to Stevie Nicks's "Sleeping Angel," which is mm-hmm. it's just so poetic. Like I, this is the first time I heard that song was in this film during that sequence, and it's one of my favorite Stevie Nicks songs, honestly. Well, we talked about it. It's right after Belladonna. Mm-hmm. Belladonna had just gone quadruple platinum. Um, Stop dragging my heart around. Edge of seventeen. That's a big, big album for her, and that's her first foray away from Fleetwood Mac other than Buckingham Nicks prior to Fleetwood Mac, which yeah. is fantastic. If anyone's never heard that, you should get on YouTube and check out Buckingham Nicks. It's beautiful. Yeah. But it's really, really well done, and I don't know what B-side that's on, but that's a really tough song to find, maybe mm-hmm. just on the soundtrack for this album. Sure. Uh, tough song to find. She's got another one, too, that's like that. It's in heavy metal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you seen heavy metal. That's an interesting film. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, she's good. I think that's one's called Blue Angel, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. The album with the bird. <laughs> oh my god, the Belladonna cover. We might have to put that on the Instagram this that's week. Pretty funny. Brutal. It's pre witchy, but you can see the <laughs> the embers of witch are burning brightly there, and that so holding witchy, some so ridiculous witchy. parrot. Whatever, she's man. So witchy, man. <laughs> Okay. But Rian, great music, great musician. Yeah, there's no denying Stevie Nicks. Who's better, Pat Benatar or Stevie, Stevie Nicks? Stevie Nicks. Oof, okay. I love Pat, them Pat both. Pat Benatar's good. And there's a good Pat, Pat Benatar joke in this film, like people dressing like her. Four or five of them. Yeah. Right. And that one girl's always dressed like Pat Benatar. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me, let's talk about that real quick because okay. another thing I like about Fast Times at Ridgemont High is so we, we've been talking about the six main people in this film the whole time. The film's peppered with little supporting supporting characters whether it be arnold the blonde glasses guy that brad gets a job at all american burger um or the cheerleaders or uh spicoli's stoner buddies eric stoltz and anthony edwards <sighs> crazy or it's jefferson uh forrest whitaker nicholas cage uh nicholas coppola brad hamilton's friends 
it's peppered with all these supporting characters. And usually when films, you know, they, they show them and then they're gone. Like all these characters, they show up periodically throughout the film, whether they're placing a bet with Damone or buying tickets or they're attending the football game or the rally or they're in class or they're at the mall, which is this hub that we've established that they keep showing up throughout the entire film. And I, I like a lot of that might be Cameron Crowe's screenplay, but a lot of that too, that's Amy Heckerling's uh, direction too. And, and, and she also knocked out, she, she came back to the, the high school genre as well with another film kind of really talking more about Los Angeles culture with clueless in a film like that, but that's having the foresight to kind of just keep peppering this cast of characters. And I love it, especially in that dance sequence at the end, because they're all there. Yeah. It's Spicoli. It's, it's, it's Phoebe Cates. It's, 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 um, rat and Damone and, and uh, Jefferson. I love it. I, I just, I like how the film uses its characters. It's, they're like flies on the wall, but they're very, they're part of the film too. Amy Heckerling's interesting. Night at the Roxbury, Johnny Dangerously, Loser, Look Who's Talking To, Look Who's Talking Now. Uh, like you said, Clueless. Pretty interesting little career she's carved out for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, this is the the crowning moment. For the sure. crowning jewel in that, in that um, legacy she's, she's built for herself. But you're right. Bringing them all back for the final goodbye. Mm-hmm creates a sense of consistency and finishes off the story of community. Like at least they're all going to go through this together. Yeah. And we recognize <clears throat> a lot of the people that are just dancing, even the, the couple that's the, the, the couple that are always holding hands, even they get their final goodbye, which is his ridiculous dance to open up that prom in the gym. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's a nice closure to it. It finishes it up. And then one more closure. We, um, well, a couple things. One of my other favorite sequences in this film is after this post um, little prick incident with Damone. He's got to face his best friend, dare we call him that. She never really was your girlfriend, right? Hey, fuck you, Damone. There are a lot of girls out there, and you you have to mess around with Stacy. I mean, what do you got to prove, anyway? Sorry. Look, I always stick up. Whenever people say, ah, oh, that, that Damone, he's a loudmouth, and they say that a lot, I always say, hey, you just don't know Damone. I mean, when they call you an idiot, I say, hey, Damone's not an idiot. You just don't know him. Well, you know something, man? Maybe they do know you pretty good. Maybe I'm just finding out now. Good for him. Yeah. To kind of stick up for him. And he's he's already kind of mousy and, like, just kind of the way his character goes about, but good for him to kind of stick up for what he wants out of his character arc. Can you relate to that scene in any way? Oh yeah. Personally? Yeah. Yeah. Me oh, too. I won't tell that story. No, me either. <laughs> but I, yeah. Again, back to that same issue. Yeah. That's sadly true. Familiar for most of us. I think I relate to his character the most. It's crazy. Rats yeah. or Damone? No rat. I mm. think I, I've been in those shoes before. We all have been. That's he's the awkward. Yeah. He's the awkward every man. Sure. He's got good intentions mm-hmm. and he's trying awful hard. Yeah. You just don't know how to do it until you screw it up a couple times. Like pretty much every single thing in your life. Yeah. Can you name one thing that you succeeded on the first time? <sighs> Breathing, nope. maybe. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe not. Yeah. Whether like, it's playing music or shooting hoops or you're really good at walking now. You were terrible at that once upon a time. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the incarnation on screen of if you fall off the bike, get back on it and go again. Mm-hmm. He's living it. Sure. With the most 
awkward stakes. That is girls and friends. Um, but he's a soft, like he's a little mousy, like you said, and a kind of Woody Allen-y. Yeah. Self-deprecating, even though he doesn't know it the way Woody Allen does. Mm-hmm. He's he's all of us. He's the awkwardness in all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. And then we have the final one that you kind of set up really nicely uh, here at the beginning of the episode. That was my skull. I'm so wasted. Oh, man. What is this stuff? Doesn't that stuff cause brain damage? Only if you take it like every day for a month. <laughs> Bitching. <laughs> Hey, dude, I'll pick you up in the van and go to the dance. There. Jeff, you have company. Get out of here, Curtis. I don't hear you unless you knock. That's better. Entry. Mr. Han. <laughs> what, what nightmare would that be? Like, you're just getting high in your room, you're in your comfort zone... And then in comes this teacher that's been giving you literally hell all year long. All year long. This is a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it is a nightmare. But like you said really well, it's it's set up. It's if this was Mr. Han's intention to get somewhat of a response out of Spicoli to take some thor- some sort of ownership out of his education. We kind of see that in this final scene. It's in Spicoli's own way. I like how he does it. He's like, we left England because it was bogus. And if we don't set up any rules here, we're just going to be bogus too. He's right. He is right. In his own Spicoli head. Yeah. And maybe that's all Mr. Hand needed out of that. And and to Mr. Hand? Yeah. Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. It works. And then that and then that's complete. I love that Mr. Hand is willing to go to those lengths mm-hmm. to see it through. You know, I mean, maybe it's self-serving. Maybe. Okay, yeah. fine. But to show up at someone's house like that is completely unheard of, obviously. Yeah. But he seems like pretty comfortable in that space. He pulls out his little manila folder that has the hours that Spicoli has wasted. Mm-hmm. And he's going to make him repay him that time. But he does it in a way that once he figures out that Spicoli has got the message, not in the very articulate and rehearsed way that Mr. Hand has presented it probably since, you know, Jesus was in his class. Yeah. Or maybe since the revolution. Yeah. (laughs) But in Spicoli's way, he's okay with it. As long as Spicoli learned in Spicoli's way, he's good. There is one slight miss in that scene, though. Mm. We talked about it, right? Yeah. As the bridge between Spicoli and Hand is built, I really want Mr. Hand to walk out and look at one of the girlies on Spicoli's wall and say aloha or acknowledge her in some way, because then what it shows is even though we're different, maybe we're not entirely different. It's not a huge miss, yeah, but just a, just foul tip on a three, two fastball. pipe. I like that. They shake hands at least for sure. Yeah. So then Brad, who we've been dogging on the whole thing, he's been fired from two jobs. He strikes out with Nancy Wilson who thinks he's just a total doof. He got caught jerking it in the bathroom. Now working at some quickie mart here late at night. And, and then here, here rolls up Spicoli and he has to deal with a guy robbing his convenience store. Like this is crazy. Mm -hmm. And he's just freaking out and this and that. And it's through some quick action. He scalds him with some crazy hot coffee. And from like the first time, I think in the entire film, I think Brad finally like 
takes command of something, which is great. Oh gosh, Jesse, that's so well said. Yeah. The first time Brad takes control of something. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think for a man who thought he had control and he's just so inadequate with just everything else. I want to go into that, but actually I know you're going to ask me later on two questions and this actually is my answer to one of those. So for sure. I don't want to do it now, but I agree with you completely right now. Cool. Yes, it's a film. He had $3 million budget. I think it grossed around like 28 million. So it wasn't a huge hit, but it was one of those ones that like got some legs as it found like the, you know, the home video market and people like kind of found the like the cultish atmosphere of this type of film. Uh, yeah, pretty tough way to market this film because I'm not sure who the biggest star might have been. Maybe, maybe Judge Reinhold. Um, well, Sean Penn's first bill, but I, I can't name a film that he was in prior to this. So I'm saying too, Phoebe Cates basically never really mattered. Yeah. I mean, she did, but she didn't. Yeah. What Gremlins? Yeah. Um, Jennifer Jason Lee. This is her beginning too. Sure. So I don't know who you put as the poster boy or girl for this film. So yeah, three million. And no money coming back, even though, would you say 28? Yeah. Not bad. 1982 ROI, inflation probably closer to like 60 to Nothing made money in 82 except for one film, and it was E.T. <laughs> Why did you say that? Oh, maybe we'll talk about that here in a couple of weeks. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, tough marketing. Yeah. Added to the National Film Registry in 2005. Like, now that, that says something. That says for some sex comedy, whatever you want to call it, that it we, we kind of see the the quiet art in it, in it all. Yeah. Which is the writing, it's the acting, it's the cult cult appeal of, of, of the whole thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, so yeah, let me just go ahead and yeah, ask, you, ask you some questions here. What's your favorite tasting note of Fast Times at Ridgemont High? It's actually the scene, which is what I was just talking sure. about. go ahead. Where Brad is cleaning the graffiti off the mirror. <laughs> One of my favorite things in film, whether it be Wild at Heart or The Hustler or this film, is the reflection of somebody with some graffiti on the mirror as they're looking back at their self because it is actually a narrative on them. Sure. Brad's cleaning the mirror and it's big hairy pussy. <laughs> Which at this point in the film, you could make the case he might be. Yeah. So when you said what you said, this is the first time he kind of grabs the bull by the horns mm -hmm. and takes down that dude in the 7-Eleven who's got him held at gunpoint and kind of mans up to the lofty position of assistant manager of a 7-Eleven, which is sort of funny. Mm -hmm. But it's that, I love that moment because he's wiping off what is a statement from the movie to the audience on him. Anytime you have that in movies for me, the mirrored reflection with something written on the mirror as you're looking at yourself. That's good. It's always a narrative. That's good. Um, and whether Piper Laurie does it specifically to let mm -hmm. Fast Eddie Felsen know in The Hustler or what we're recognizing in Wild Heart just how flippin' crazy mom is. Mm -hmm. And I could go on and on with that. It's just, I love that moment and it's really done well in this film. Yeah. What's yours? I think it's the opening of the film. Okay. That opening credit sequences. I, I pay attention to to credit sequences. I think they serve an important purpose in film. Whether you save your credits for the end of the film or decide to roll them out, whether it's a, a Bond film or just known for its credit sequences yeah, or, one. you know, like David Fincher and like, like, you know, Seven has a legendary credit sequence that I think really sets the tone of that film. Psycho. Psycho, Vertigo, Saul Bass, all that stuff. 
what the hell was I going to say about Saul? I was thinking about something Saul Bassy in the shower this morning. Maybe it'll come back to me. <laughs> okay. Um, no, it's, it, it sets the tone of the entire film and it establishes every prominent and supporting character that we're going to see throughout. And the fact that it's done by, we got the beat by the Go-Go's, you know, the time period, you just get it mm-hmm. without saying one word. It's like, you're right, like three minutes and 30 seconds before we start getting into it and we're, we're already there. Yeah, it sets the tone. Teenage angst. That song, We Got the Beat, is teenage angsty. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. It's really, yeah, that, that, that's probably my favorite. Okay, Matt, what's your... Oh, my God. I need to take a shot moment of this film. There's quite a few to pick from. What do you got here? Mine might be the same as yours. I hope it's not, but it might be, and that's the dugout scene. <laughs> Just so gritty. It is gritty. Of all the things that you can only give away once to give it away in a freaking dugout with graffiti as the the anthem yeah. of the rhythm of that. Yeah. Uh, and I know you don't like the Jackson Brown song at that point, but it, it kind of fits that, that 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 moment too pretty well. Oh, no, it does. It, it fits it. I'm just not a Jackson Brown fan, but it fits. Yeah. yeah Going to be somebody's baby. Indeed. In a dugout. Oh, that's, yeah, that's just... But again, the film not being unapologetic about what it's trying to be. I think there's there's just some truth in, in it all instead of glamorizing some of it. Well, and if we polled Rye Nation, how many of us could say, I, I probably <laughs> don't know the dugout, but if I had it all to do over again, it wasn't in the back of a buggy on a hay ride underneath the moonlight on... But no, it probably was sure. in the backseat of whatever car, you know, or whatever. Yeah. So again relatability but mm-hmm. awful in that dugout is there's just all of this graffiti everywhere and here's this 26 year old guy yep banging out a 15 year old yeah ron johnson <laughs> ron johnson yeah yeah mine is man i just want to take a shot for brad hamilton it's him getting caught jerking it in the bathroom this the scene is just the scene's just so well put together and then the the way it kind of plays out i just i feel so bad for him i feel the worst for his character through the whole thing because he thinks he has it figured out, and then he has to backtrack, and then it blows up in his face when his girlfriend breaks up with him, and then he gets all these terrible jobs. He just can't catch a break, especially in that moment. So to you, Hamilton, I'm taking one for you. To that, to yeah. both of them. <laughs> to both of them. Dugouts and Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, who's the master distiller on Fast Times at Ridgemont High? I guess Amy Heckerling. Um to take a flyer on, I, you know, you could say Cameron Crowe, mm-hmm. and I, I'm a big fan. Yeah. He's just kind of sowing his oats a little bit. So I think there's a little bit of aging process that we'll go through with Cameron Crowe, that if this was a latter iteration in his filmography, he'd be the winner. <clears throat> but Heckerling, to present this and direct this and put this together in a way <coughs> with mostly a spec story from an unknown in the screenwriting entity, well-known in the rock uh, journalism field, I'm going to have to give her credit and to let the movie be Mm -hmm. what he wrote it to not get in the way of what the story was to let that man have enough space Mm -hmm. on set to do the film the way he wants. That's who's going to get my vote. And if there was any question, clueless did the same thing later again. Yeah. Equally well. Yeah. Well, not equally well. Well, Mm -hmm. okay. Heckerling. Oh, that's pretty good. And, um, yeah, because it's a story that doesn't have like it has a beginning, middle, and an end. But because it it jumps from plot lines to plot lines, and it's just this world of Ridgemont that you know um, that they're trying to establish. That takes a certain amount of juggling and glue to kind of put that together. 
yeah, she handles that really well. And I don't know how integral Cameron Crowe was like on the set. So someone has to kind of wrangle that all in and all this talent. Like if I could give just a shout out to my, my master distiller is just this cast. And not only is it Sean Penn and Jennifer Jason Lee and all the people I mentioned that Phoebe Cage, Judge Reinhold, Robert Romanus and Brian Backer, it's Ray Walston, it's Anthony Edwards, it's Eric Stoltz, it's Nicolas Cage, it's Coppola. Coppola. Yeah, it's all these people that hadn't even found it big yet, and somehow they're in this film. Oh, Pamela Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen's sister, is one of the cheerleaders. Nancy Wilson. Nancy Wilson. Just all these people just showing up just to kind of just say, hey, that went on to have crazy careers. Yeah. Um, that's that That's something in of itself. And I think... I don't think the cast steps on each other's toes. I think they all kind of let each other have their moment, their individual plot line. That's hard to do too with an ensemble. I think about if I was going to write a log line for this film, what it might look like, because this isn't a high concept idea. It's pretty low concept. Mm -hmm. Something along the lines of in 1982, every town Americana, as we watch the trials and tribulations of, the graduating class of Ridgemont High. Snoozeville. Okay, what the hell's that movie about? Yeah. But Heckerling found a way, whether it was through the novel mm-hmm. or whether a really good pitch from Crow or who knows how, to give this the green light and let it be what it was. And we mentioned Clueless, we mentioned Superbad, we mentioned American Pie. Yeah. Um, what's the one with... Can't hardly wait. That's what's right. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Love Hewitt mm-hmm. and whatever Sean Green um, or Seth Green. Yeah, right. So all of those are allowed or permissible because of this. Because prior to this, the coming of age film you could argue was like Last Picture Show. Yeah, or The Graduate. And that, that, that those are different beasts Way altogether. Different. Yeah. Right. That's like finding yourself in like. And I would argue The Graduate's also a comedy. Yeah. So this I movie, laugh. <laughs> yes, right. This movie is a game changer. Yeah. Isn't that weird that yeah. the Fast Times of Ridgemont High is a game changer, but you can defend that pretty easily. In many different ways, I think. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and rate this thing. We have Rocket, Well Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf for our rating system. Can I go first this week? Of course. Since I picked this film... I love it. It's 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 one it's one of my favorites. I've seen it so many times. So quotable, Mister. Huh? Like I, I held back pretty good on this, not like to quote the whole film and just let the the movie speak for itself. Um, to kind of give it top shelf almost seems like a disservice to the film itself. It's, it's this is a single barrel film, but that's no disservice to it. it. To me, it's so wholly unique in that it captures high school in a way that's almost impossible to do as much as I love American pie. Even some of that's a little exaggerated to me um, at times. That's a, I think that movie's kind of brilliant at, at times as well. Me too. Uh, high school's hard to do on TV, on film. And I think if we, you can find some relation into, in, I'm finding relation into characters from 1982 and I'm um, a child of the nineties says something about the film. Yeah, gospel, Jesse. That you kind of can speak to just kind of everyday life. And the film captures that really well. It's funny. It gets into some deep and, I don't want to say dark dark territory, but it... it, A little bit. Yeah, it goes there. It's not afraid to go there, but Heckerling and crew, they know how to pull it back. And it's due to their characters. Like, this this is a hard film to make, for sure. 
to that dark bit that they pull back when Damone doesn't keep up his end of the bargain when Stacy gets the abortion. That could go really south and really dark. Mm -hmm. But she pays it off, and not by cutting Miss Desjardins in half at the school prom, <laughs> but by making him look like a jackass in a comedic way. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give it the same rating as you, single barrel. Yeah. This is a genre-defining game changer for this coming of age high school slice of life Americana movie. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have much more to add than what you just said. I think you said it very, very well. Yeah. So I'm with you. This is single barrel, which I think is breaks my streak of seven in a row. So still really good, but single barrel Yeah. with the highest tasting notes and accolades that could be bestowed on a single barrel. Oh, that's well said. Yeah. Gave us Cameron Crowe. God bless him. Yeah. For 15 years we'll talk about some of his other films we might have to do a cask on some of some of his stuff because like say anything uh singles that's him right no. oh my god and i love that movie like i'm that would be a fun movie like if we did a, a cameron crow cask like do really good crow and then what a lot of people say middle of the road crow but i love that film but i bet you don't yeah. as much as i do and then what we agree is Bad Crow and sort of measure the rise and fall of that would be cool. It was like singles, almost famous and like we bought a zoo. Yeah. Or Aloha. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be all over the place. I mean, about the only thing he's good at now is rockumentaries. Mm -hmm. He did a really good one on the band and I think a really good one on Pearl Jam, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But again, that's also generational. And I hate to say this cause it might be a really sad admission. Maybe it's just, Gen X didn't wear as well as I want it to be because it pertains to me. Yeah. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe that has sailed. Yeah. And it might be. Yeah, that's that's pretty well said. We'll see. Well, let's get right to it and let's wrap this up with our nightcap. how the film wraps up with Oingo Boingo like I don't like all their music but I like I like some of it like I like it use in this this Danny Elfman's band I love Oingo Boingo and back to school they're in it <laughs> well look Danny Elfman whether it's Oingo, Bango, Oingo Boingo or otherwise is really important mm -hmm. with the scores of film yeah like a lot of stuff's been scored by Danny Elfman yeah so yeah great Excellent. So the nightcap this week, we prefaced this at the beginning of of the cask that, you know, week three, we're going to kind of, because comedy just, it spans so many different decades and so many different subgenres, whether it's slapstick or screwball or raunch or sex or whatever, um, to kind of leave it up to the listeners to kind of put in their own choices and kind of see what we get for film number three this week. So we had everybody submit an entry that wanted to, and then we put them into a hat, which we're going to videotape the drawing of this from Jesse here in just a minute. Mm -hmm. So what, there's probably, what, 20 entries in here? Yeah. And we're going to pick one, and that's going to be the winner. Yeah. A couple highlights you want to mention maybe that are in here that maybe you were interested in or curious about? Well, I'll let something. you know. Some of the odds are increased for some films because there's multiple entries in there for what we do in the shadows and hot fuzz. Okay. Um, there's some stuff of old with Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart. Uh, there's some stuff. Say Philadelphia story and bringing up baby. Yep. Uh, there's some stuff um, that's more recent. Uh, uh, there's a little bit of everything in there. So yeah, this could go anyway. So I'm going to fire up the phone and I'm going to hold the little um, bucket up here and we're going to watch you draw. So are we ready? Yes. Five, four, three, two, one. 
I'm nervous. All righty. The winner, and I have the names here in my notes key, is I Love You Man, courtesy of Brett R. <laughs> How about that? Brett found his way to make it in again. Yes. There were some great entries. I have the, the full list here. There was The Odd Couple, Super Bad, The Heartbreak Kid, Game Night, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, In Bruges, This is the End. So many, I think this could have gone anyway, so... We're going to be talking about I Love You, Man, from 2009, I think, or 2010. Yeah. I got a cool story about this because one of my guy friends actually took me on a mandate to go see this movie. Well, we're <laughs> going to get to talk about Jason Segal. Yeah. I can't wait. And Paul Rudd and Rush. Beautiful. Excellent. Excellent. Congrats, Brett. I'm going to, maybe you can hook us up with the flight and nightcap questions for this upcoming week. And to all the, and, and to, and to all the, the listeners that put in, thank you for, we'll do this from time to time and just kind of take like a raw kind of pick into that. So you're saying Brett gets to pose the nightcap and flight questions for this sure, week? Sure, why not? Let's do it. Yeah. Brett, you're on blast, buddy. Yep. Come up with something great. Make it happen. Well, cool. Man, this is a lot of fun. That was fun. Kind of fun to kind of take, you know, you know William Friedkin is, those films are pretty dark and kind of dreary in their own right. So it's been nice to kind of, kind of switch it a little bit and kind of talk about some fun stuff and, and we've been telling a lot of st like personal stories of just kind of growing up and kind of living life. I think which speaks to the power of this film. Yeah. And I think the power of the genre comedy. Exactly. Exactly. So next week, I love you, man. And until then I got to get going, Matt. Uh, I got to go and, you know, clean my car. Uh, kind of like Brad, maybe I'll do it to that song by the Ravens that we had to look up. I got a shift at Long John Silver's. I got to meet here in about 10 minutes. So I got a boogie too. <laughs> Man, nothing says quarantine like uh, deep fried fish. Fast food and carry out. Yeah, there you go. Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. Fast Times at Ridgemont High is property of Universal Pictures and Refugee Films, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. <laughs> <laughs>